he's the one who said, you know, he said, if you're thinking about contemporary music, he said, long term, the really good stuff is now coming out on albums and in stereo. And he said, that's where the big sales are going. That's where the artists are going. He said, you ought to consider a, you know, some kind of album uh, rock, folk rock format. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talked to John David and Jack McGowan and featured Jeff Douglas. The year was 1968, and John was Kink's first general manager, Jeff, Kink's first program director. They were the vision behind the station. Jack McGowan was Kink's first promotions manager, and he came on board a few years later. The three discuss how they got Kink's call letters, the first days on the air, and Kink, the underground link. We start with John David. Besides FM not making money at that time, none of King Broadcasting's radio stations made any money at that time. They made all their money in television and cable, and they made a lot of it. But the radio stations didn't amount to anything to them. My theory is, because they had to apply for the license before they even hired me, was that their engineering department, which swung a lot of weight in Seattle at the corporate headquarters at the time, was always looking for new projects. So they sold the ownership on the idea that there were only two licenses left available in Portland, and if the company ever had intentions of of staying in radio, they should get in FM and they should start by getting one of those licenses. So if that decision hadn't been made, if uh, Mrs. Bullitt and the board hadn't decided to go ahead in Seattle, nothing would have happened at all. And I, I think it was the engineering department that got the ball rolling because there was no reason to put another money-losing radio station <laughs> on the air for their portfolio, other than it was a, a bet on the future. Yeah, and they, at the time, owned KGW-TV and KGW-AM, is that right? That's correct. And so they brought in the FM portion of it, and it was, was it first known as KGW-FM then? No, the um, the call letters would be assigned after you got um, mm-hmm. approval on your license. Mm-hmm. And you had to apply for them and so on and so forth. So at the time, they got the license, there were no call letters assigned. Now, the assumption in the standard practice in those days was to go with KGW-FM or the the AM station that you owned plus FM call letters. Mm -hmm. But by the time I came on the scene, I was already pretty pretty well determined that we should have a separate set of call letters because we wanted to distinguish ourselves from the unpopular and money-losing <laughs> AM station. <laughs> and that was a hard sell in Seattle. In fact, they didn't approve separate call letters until shortly before we went on the air, about four months before we actually went on the air and had a, a, an approved set uh, from the FCC. One of the other breaking points, oh, and the the initial application was for another classical music station. Hmm. So I think as you can you can already see, um, kink was not an accident, <laughs> but an awful lot of pieces had to fall into place before it ever got onto the air to become the station, you know, that hmm. it was. And I think a second breaking point was when they hired the first manager. A note went up on the bulletin board uh, at 1501 Southwest Jefferson. Station manager wanted for an FM license was applied for. I was one of two people in the company that applied for the position. I was the one that got hired. I have no idea what the station would have been had the other guy been hired. Exactly, yeah. Uh, He was the TV station program librarian. But when Payne interviewed, Ansel Payne interviewed me and said, well, you know, this classical music format is just an idea from Seattle, so, you know, you have any thoughts? And I said, yeah, we should be a 
top 40 station. That was the obvious hole in the market at the time. So the other, there was another rock station, and that was Kiss and AM, correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. They were the one and only contemporary station in Portland. Everyone was afraid to compete with them, and uh, it actually was a pretty shoddy operation. Um, I knew enough about radio, having been in it since high school, and I kind of kept, even though I was working in television at the time, I sort of kept track of the radio business because it was my first love. and. Mm-hmm. The Boss Radio format, which was a very clean, high-powered format, very, very well executed, was very popular at the time, but that was not what the Portland Top 40 station was. It was kind of a mess, but they were the only game in town. Mm -hmm. They got big ratings, and and they scared everybody off. Hmm. And then you, so you started thinking, okay, this is our hole. This is where we should uh, start focusing on. Is that about the time that you were looking for a program director? Um, implement? That, that happened, again, it was kind of a quirk of fate. Um, first of all, I had to get Ansel Payne's approval mm-hmm. to not do classical music and do something contemporary, mm-hmm. which he, he told me to write up a proposal and he'd get a corporate approval on it and, and I should plan on being able to do something contemporary. And then after that, I had a lot of stuff to attend to, and and one of them, of course, was finding my first program director, which was kind of a chore because at that point, nobody wanted to work in FM very much. Uh, (laughs) Everybody wanted to work in AM. And our AM station happened to be interviewing a guy named Malcolm Cross. Um, They didn't really have an opening, so they sent him around to see me. And um, we got into a discussion. I told him about the station, about the market. Uh, Jeff had some radio background. He'd worked in radio for a few years. And um, he was also really into contemporary music. And we, we really hit it off. I mm-hmm. mean, we, uh, there was a real connection there right away. We, we both understood radio. We both understood some contemporary music um, he was heavy into the newer stuff. I was more of a Dick Clark pop music guy. But uh, nonetheless, you know, we, we were very much in an agreement on the opportunity that was in Portland. Um, he's the one who said, you know, he said, if you're thinking about contemporary music, he said, long term, the really good stuff is now coming out on albums and yeah. in stereo. And he said, that's where the big sales are going that's where the artists are going. He said, you ought to consider a, you know, some kind of album uh, rock, folk rock format. And at the same time he told me about it, I was getting a pitch from ABC Radio, who had a format on their FM stations called the Love Format, and they were syndicating it. Hmm. And so they proposed that we pick up their syndication package. Well, between ABC and Jeff, I started looking into the whole album market. And uh, sure enough, even before Kink went on the air, the stereo album contemporary product was outselling 45 RPM singles, even though they were, you know, the singles were 99 cents. The albums were five bucks at the time. But the unit volume in albums had already started to take off and exceed 45. So the popularity was mm-hmm. obviously there and growing very quickly. I talked to people in the distribution business and the local record stores, got the same answer from all of them. The real money is in albums, and that's what the public is buying, and we love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you noticed the trend that was starting an upswing, that's for sure. You and Jeff did. And Jeff, at the time, I mean, he's, I'm going to say it, he was a young kid. He was 22 years old, just yeah, out well, of college. I, I, was, I was 24. Jeez. <laughs> That speaks to, you know, the opportunity at the time with FM being sort of, you know, a last thought, a throwaway. So they were willing to take risks with some young guys who had some new ideas and wanted to and wanted to see where it took off. Yeah. Payne's instructions to me when he hired me were, he said, don't get us into any trouble and try not to lose too much money. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I had read that. King Broadcasting was planning to own the station, the stations for three years, and then sell it because FM stations were risky. So is that true? Did you, did you know at the time that you sort of had three years to play with and then, and then it could be sold? Um, 
I was never told that, and I never heard about that. It probably wouldn't surprise me yeah. uh, if it was true, but I, I can't say that, that that was true. There, I'm sure there was some kind of time frame, especially if, if we were, became another sixth money-losing right. operation. And fortunately, Jeff and I both were very sort of commercially oriented. You know, I mean, we were... We were not doing this station as a work of art. We were doing it because uh, we saw a real opportunity. We we saw the music that he liked and I liked, and the audience that wasn't being served. But we were, you know, we approached it very much as a marketing problem. Jeff Douglas, King's first program director, talks about how we got our call letters. K I N K. We were just looking through for combinations of call letters that would be easy to say or easy to remember like most radio stations do and uh, we came upon kink and a lot of people think it was because a rock group the kinks were popular then but it really wasn't it was an easy word to say and being a part of king broadcasting kink had a sort of irreverent tone to it which we liked at the time and we called the federal communications commission to see if we could get those call letters because no radio station had them and they told us that it was belonged to a shipping company, I think down in California, I can't remember for sure. And we thought, well, we'll call them and maybe offer to buy the call letters from them, because most shipping companies don't care. And when we called them, they said, no problem, the ship sank two years ago. That's how we got KINK. <laughs> Now back to John David, Kink's first general manager, who elaborates on the origins of Kink's call letters. The most appealing one was K-I-N-K, and it was submitted by Claire Hanawalt, who was our chief engineer at the time. Hmm. As I said, the engineering department carried a lot of weight in Seattle. I mean, Claire actually, besides being chief engineer, was sort of their eyes and ears in, in Portland at the time. He was... He was uh, very much listened to by the parent company. Mm-hmm. And his, his call letters actually were, you know, were terrific. Yeah. I said, do you, do you think you can get this through Seattle? And he said, I'm going to tell them that it's as close as we could get to K-I-N-G. <laughs> and, and he said, and that'll swing it in our favor, I guarantee it. <laughs> and sure enough, as soon as I, I submitted my list, they approved it. The FCC came, it was first, our first choice of four on our second list, mm. and the FCC approved it. So, again, another one of those things that could have gone a bunch of different ways, yeah. but we wound up with what we wanted, a catchy, descriptive uh, set of call letters. And who would think 50 years later it's still, still around, because that, that doesn't happen very often. No, that's, um, that doesn't happen at all. In fact, the parent company, King Broadcasting, is long gone. Mm-hmm. The two stations on the West Coast that pioneered album rock formats, KMPX and KSAN in San Francisco, uh, MPX is now a religious station, and KSAN has also changed call letters and now I think has a, been a top 40 station since the 80s. So a lot of the original stations that started out, and there were only a handful of them. I think we were one of five or six in the country at the Mm -hmm. time that were really into this format. Uh, Only a few of them remain to this day. So the station starts off, and you're not in this really big, gorgeous studio. (laughs) You've got a a small two rooms, was it? A couple of turntables and and cart machine, and it's just you and Jeff for the first first year or so? Well, actually... um, there was a third person that everybody, nobody was really aware of outside of the station and has been long since forgotten, and that was our automation system. Mm-hmm. When we signed on, um, Kink was totally automated. Here's Jeff Douglas, Kink's first program director, talking about the first days on the air. When we went on the air, there were two of us, just John David and I. There was the whole station, and there was automation. Pretty much all, in fact, I think it was all day long at that point because there really wasn't any alternative to stay on the air. We didn't go 24 hours then either. We signed off at night sometime and back on in the morning. And my job really was to get the music onto carts and plug it into the automation 
And then over the years, we refined the automation and made it sound better and used it less and less as we become more affluent, we'd hire people. The very first day was, was hair raising. We, uh, we'd only gotten all the engineering done like three days before we went on the air. And I was going like crazy trying to, to get enough records on the cartridges to put into the automation system so we could go on the air. Literally spent, I bet it was 18 hours a day doing in the three days before we went on the air. I think we came on from about 6 a.m. to midnight or 1 o'clock, I can't remember. But I was the only one to do it. So the automation could theoretically handle it by itself. But it required a lot of work to load the automation, especially in those early days. And I spent, I don't know how many days in a row, but it was a matter of months before I had a day off. And in the early days, I just would stay there and work from 6 a.m. to midnight, and then I'd sleep in the ladies' restroom here because it was the only one with a bed in it. <laughs> so, so in my very first days at KINK, I'd say for a week or so, I just, I just lived here, had people bring me lunches and stuff. Now back to John David, King's first general manager, who talks about the first three members of the King staff, himself, Jeff Douglas, and the automation system. Somebody came up with, uh, I think, one of the tour guides. They would periodically give tours to, around the television, the AM and FM, and we had a big glass window, and there was the, there was the automation system beside, behind the glass window. I think one of the tour guides said, you know, you really, people really have questions about what that machine does. You ought to give it a name. So we call it the Kinkalodeon. <laughs> and uh, that was our third member of the team. And it was really uh, sort of forced on us as a necessity because yeah. they were not going to pay. Uh, King was not going to foot the bill for a payroll of a bunch of disc jockeys nope. until things sort of proved themselves out. But it turned out to be a big plus for us because it gave us total control over the music, which in those days, with a new format and a bunch of disc jockeys who all had their own ideas about what to play, turned out to be a real big advantage uh, for an album rock station. Mm-hmm. Our third team member, you know, was really um, was really critical, I think, in establishing Kink's early identity because it gave us a consistency and a reliability that really would have been hard to achieve if we had even been able to sign on with an all-live staff of uh, DJs. Yeah, going rogue every once in a while. Oh, frequently. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we were almost totally automated for the first year. Mm-hmm. And the first live programming we did um, was, uh, I believe, we, I don't remember if Jeff did an hour or two in the mornings live or not. He did eventually. I don't know if we started with that or not. I forget. But I do know one of our first live programs were uh, the album previews, Hmm. uh, which we did at night at 10 o'clock. Now, in those days, when you bought an album at the record store, it was shrink-wrapped in plastic, and you really didn't know what you were getting. Mm -hmm. And so we thought about it and decided... um, and this was sort of in line with our whole idea about the station, was that we would get these albums in early, we'd pick the ones we were pretty sure were going to be popular, and uh, we would preview them uninterrupted at night at 10 o'clock. We did Mm -hmm. that a couple times, and it was really popular, so we decided we'd do it every night and sell sponsorships. And so the album album preview thing was born. and, And if that wasn't our first live programming it was very early on was it you and jeff picking out those albums to preview no no it was jeff did jeff did all the music um i had a golden ear for the pop stuff but jeff had two golden ears and he could he could read music and he could play music so he was really really talented at going through a 12-inch stack of albums and picking out the ones known and unknown that Mm -hmm. were going to make it with the public. And then within the albums, the tracks that they would really be attracted to. And it happened occasionally that we'd get into a discussion about music. And there were a couple times, I think he asked me about, uh, I remember once in particular about Bob Dylan's uh, Nashville Skyline album. He'd ask for my opinion on something, but basically... You know, uh, he he was busy with the music and I was busy with everything else. So that that was all Jeff. Early on, after a few years, Kink really became known as a station that was breaking new music in many ways, introducing an audience to new music uh, oh, yeah. and, and really helping those music, musicians get careers to take oh, off. Jeff did, Jeff did that 
uh, Jeff did that from the start. Yeah. He, he, besides being able to pick music, Jeff had a real talent for programming our our automation system and programming it into a format on the air. So he had a category that he he divided music uh, into. He would break it into a hot rotation, which was stuff that was surefire material, plus the new artists that he thought were were pretty surefire, and then a medium rotation that stuff was had been on the charts and was starting to to go down and and stuff that was on the way up in the album sales charts, mm-hmm. and then a third category of music that was stuff that was just about you know to fall off the chart and some things that he was willing to take a risk on that were new. Yeah. So we, we, we played uh, unknowns and new stuff uh, right from the beginning. He, he, uh, he made a point of that. And that's what's kind of neat. One of the legacies of that decision by Jeff is that Kink has been that station throughout the 50 years of, yes, playing things that you know are there on the charts, but also stuff that people aren't playing. And that's yeah. kind of neat to hear that it's been that way since the beginning. The idea, the basic idea that we had for the station was to attract our target audience, 18 to 34s, with the popular quality variety in music and eliminate any reasons for them to tune out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we limited our commercials, no news, voices that sounded like real people, all of that was different from from top 40 radio in that day. We were in the target audience ourselves, he being 22 and me 24. So, but because of our radio and music backgrounds, we were even better able than average to, to, you know, sort of exceed our listener expectations. What I wanted to talk about quickly before we got past the formatting Mm -hmm. was the basic idea for the station. Um, and that was to create a, a good listener experience for that 18 to 34-year-old target audience. And uh, music was the calling card. Uh, we played it according to what people were buying and what we guessed they would buy or want to buy and eliminate all the rest of the stuff. And that was that was what we were trying to do. And then we would monitor the station 24/7. I mean, either Jeff or I was listening to the station all the time, mm-hmm. and and Jeff would uh, you know listen as as a just as a listener and put his own musical preferences aside. For example, he was a big Gordon Lightfoot fan. <laughs> <laughs> if we'd programmed the music according to his taste, it would have been Gordon Lightfoot all day, all the time. But but you know he was he was also very professional so he'd put all that stuff away and just listen to the station and pick up things that needed to be tweaked for that first year there was also a period of adjustment there where we would you know adjust the uh, p- the playlists and the music rotations to get that sound that we were sort of hoping for and we got it yeah and the interesting thing was that that machine actually the sum of those parts added up to something a lot bigger than what we put into it. I mean, the overall effect was even better <laughs> better than, than what we expected, you know, when we set it up. Jeff said a lot of times that he'd listen to the station, as, you know, monitoring it for quality control, and the station, the machine, the Kinkalodeon, would put together music sets that were really great <laughs> and ones that he never would have thought of, so... It was it was all win. It really was the third element of the station. Yeah. Um, at what point did did you realize you and Jeff realized that you guys were onto something that you know things were taking off and you were really giving Kiss and AM a, a run for its money? Based on the feedback that we were starting to get over the phone and requests for interviews, but from the newspaper and and this and that and the other thing, and the reaction to the people in the building, and at that time there was quite a large number of people employed everybody was pretty excited about it which was which was fun yeah plus we knew from listening yeah i mean we knew we had a sound that all we had to do was get people to tune in and the people we wanted to reach were going to stay there and they were going to tell people about it because there was nobody in town like that like us like kink and um we had a signal that covered the whole eastern half of the state in stereo. 
we were pretty sure we were on the right track very soon after we went on the air. Mm-hmm. How long were you with Kink then? I can't remember exactly, including the year before the station went on the air. I was hired to work before I was named as the general. They didn't name me as general manager until the on-air date was set. I think I worked on Kink for about three or four years. And then Jeff um, stayed on a little. Jeff stayed on longer. Yeah, Jeff stayed on longer. I did talk to Jeff. Um, it sounded to me like he got sort of fed up with the whole corporate routine that he had to run to get budgets approved and yeah. do what he wanted to do and explain things to management and so on, so on, so on. And I think he just sort of, he was happy as a program director, less so as a general manager. And then he he uh, got an attractive offer from uh, Oregon Public Television and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the rest is history. Looking back on your years at Kink, what 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 do you come away with? What are you what are you most happy about or most most proud about? Oh, I think I think the uh, the longevity of the station. Uh, I think the fact that that what we started was started so well that it lasted. Yeah. Um, that you know we we made it a point to uh, to stay in touch with our audience as best we could. We did the community service. Uh, projects and and we did a few documentaries but um i think the fact that it it started off great and it has endured all these years is just um is just amazing to me and i'm proud of that and i think the people that carried it forward deserve as much credit if not more because you know it's easy to be good for a while but it's really not easy to maintain that for 50 years. <laughs> no, no, it's not. You know, it's interesting with these conversations I've been having with folks, you know, from a music millennium to um, Oregon Humane Society, you know, you have to adapt to changes. And, and certainly the broadcasting and radio in particular has gone through so many changes, uh, even over the last 20 years, not, you know, much less 50 years that, yeah, you have to constantly adapt and it's pretty neat that 50 years later, you know, here we are. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue the conversation in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company. The legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. Now back to the early days of Kink. The year was 1968, and John David was Kink's first general manager. Jeff Douglas, Kink's first program director. They were the vision behind the station. Jack McGowan was Kink's first promotions manager, and he came on board a few years later. The three discuss how they got Kink's call letters, the first days on the air, and Kink, the underground link. Here's Jack McGowan. I came to Portland uh, from, from New York City because I'm, I was a born and bred New Yorker and hated it and wanted to find a better place to live and uh, was going to go west. And in 1970, uh, a chance encounter on a New York City street corner with Paul Simon, I was going to go to California. And after talking about Vietnam War and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and Selma and Jackson State and all of the horrors uh, that was that were going on in the country at the time, I was kind of pouring my heart out saying, I'm leaving New York for the last time. I've got to find a better life somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I was going to go to California. And Paul responded, well, have you ever thought of the Pacific Northwest? <laughs> and we talked a little bit about Seattle. And then Paul said, you know, Portland is a town that thinks it's a city. <laughs> and he said, you might want to think about Portland. And with that, I totally changed my direction. Wow. About a month and a half later, I arrived in Portland, not knowing a soul, no job, no family, no friends, and uh, started to recreate my life, if you will. Well, one of the first things, I, of course, I did was I gravitated to radio, and I found KINK FM 102. And I heard Jeff Douglas' uh, voice on the air and others and got to know Jeff uh, through a, a, just a crazy, crazy 
back-channel way, but uh, Jeff and, and his wife at the time, Connie, and I became great friends, and I got to know the kink staff, and Jeff came to me and said, look, um, we're going to be looking for a promotion and marketing uh, director, and I'm not going to do the hiring, but I'll be uh, in the tail end of the, of, the, of, the, of the group that will. And he said, you know, if you want to apply, I'm not going to put any influence on this, Jack, but if you want to apply, uh, why, don't you, why don't you think about it? Well, that was my life's dream. Yeah. Uh, gosh, to work for Kink Radio back in those days, and, and I put my name in the hat. And as luck would have it, Governor Tom McCall's niece was the HR director at the time, a wonderful woman named Zizi McCall. And uh, ZZ hired me, and mm-hmm. Jeff said, you've got the job. So for the incredible salary of $10,000 a year, <laughs> uh, I, I was hired and really started and learned radio from the bottom up. Yeah. Kink was so small at the time, there were only four of us on the air, and we had an automation system. And so we would go on automation for a while as we were producing spots or public affairs programming, whatever, and then go back live. So Jeff had it every morning, Monday through Friday, uh, from 6 to 10. I had uh, the midday shift, 10 to 2. Uh, and then a guy named M.L. Marsh had 2 to 6. And then another great guy, Scott Carter, mm-hmm. had the 6 to 11. And Scott was the, was the, the guy that, that came up with uh, the legendary music programming uh, every night called Lights Out. Here's more from Jeff Douglas, King's first program director, on King's early days. We created little closets for people to work out of and studios that were totally makeshift. Uh, and that was bad in, in one sense, but it was because it made working more difficult than it needed to be. But it was good in another way because it was all of us pulling together to try to pull it off against all odds. That was one thing, sort of rising through the adversity was kind of good. Another thing that I think uh, added to it is that we were trying something that really wasn't being tried anywhere else. There were album stations around the country, even in 68, although not many and not doing well, but there were some. Uh, but there, there wasn't anybody really trying the precise things that we were trying which was a mixture of folk music with popular music. Uh, in other words, we were sort of making it up as we went along. And that, I think, uh, added to the spirit, too. Now back to Jack McGowan, Kink's first promotions manager. So what it was, all of us were, uh, if you will, talk about learning, learning radio in, in this way where you had so many different things that you had to do, that you wanted to do, we had no real playlist. Uh, this was in the glory days of, of FM radio, where really, especially under Jeff's guidance, he just said to folks, you decide what you want to play. You know the audience at Kink. You know what they like. And you can experiment. You can do musical blends. But as long as you keep what the audience would like in your mind, you're free to, you're free to program the way you'd like to program. Hmm. And... At the time, we were so, I guess, neophyte, if you will, that, that we, we didn't understand the gift that Jeff was giving us. Yeah. AM was really still the top dog uh, on the airwaves, and FM was this young upstart that was starting to encroach, if you will, on, on, on people's uh, listening and, and, uh, and music habits. And so Kink really was the station uh, that a broad, broad group of new kind of thinking and and a new musical taste gravitated to. And I, I look back at, on that, Peggy, and I say how fortunate, you know, all of us were. Uh, we had really the, the entire staff of Kink was seven people, where we had the four on the air. We had a great guy who's still around. Paul Blanding really was, was kind of the... Uh, handled all of the business areas of, of the station, and, and we had had two salespeople, and that was a, a tiny, uh, you know, tiny group of folks that really got along well. That was really friendship, and uh, really excited about about what we were doing. We were so personally committed to what the programming was about, and we took it so seriously 
uh, where all of us would sit around and, you know, listen to, you know, some, some you know, new artists like Jackson Brown, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or Joni Mitchell or Gordon Lightfoot. Um, and it, it was really an extraordinary time, not only of music, but an extraordinary time for us personally. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, FM was a new was a new deal, new kid on the block, if you will. And AM was really um, the powerhouse. Did you did you guys feel pressure six years? You, you entered six years into King's history. Did you feel pressure uh, to perform uh, in a certain way? Did you feel, you know, uh, like like there was a lot riding on what you were doing? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, at the time, Kink Radio was uh, was owned by King Broadcasting, yeah. which was a, a Seattle-based um, family-run mm-hmm. Bullet business. sisters, yeah. A, a legendary woman, Dorothy Bullet. Yeah. Uh, she and her late husband, Stimson Bullet, owned King Broadcasting, and they had a radio and television station in Seattle. They had KGW-TV. They had KGW-AM. Uh, kink in uh, in uh, Portland, and then uh, and then a radio station in in San Francisco. So it was a family-run business, and this young upstart of of Kink was people scratched their heads corporately. <laughs> they didn't really understand what this new concept was about, uh, but they you know they felt like okay, well we have a license and we're just simulcasting uh, what uh, you know what AM was about. So why don't we just see and have an experiment, hire a young guy named Jeff Douglas, which John David hired, mm-hmm. and, and see if, if this experiment can bear fruit. So there wasn't corporate pressure per se saying, you better perform. Because it was a family-run business, because it wasn't some type of corporate medium that had shareholders, the family, namely Harriet Bullitt, gave us the latitude of saying, why don't you try something? Yeah. And they gave John and they gave Jeff that latitude. And it, Kink was the right place, right time. Yeah. Um, it was, like I said, the emergence of a new cultural norm called FM radio. I mean, a lot of cars didn't even have FM in them. It was, right. They were just mostly AM radios in the cars, and you had a special order in FM, an AM-FM radio as an option. And so what you had there was this, this genesis, this birth, if you will, of this new type of not only radio but art form that did not conform to the strict pattern of AM radio, of, you know, every song had to be under three minutes or three minutes and five seconds, where we could experiment not only with, with extended plays of, 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 uh, of music, but also blends of music that were unheard of on AM radio. 80 AM radio was top 40. You had such a tightly defined playlist that this is what you had to do. You didn't, whether you wanted to or not, this is what you played. And FM was, this is what you want to play. And so that's changed over the years, needless to say. But in that infancy, in those young uh, days, uh, the people that were involved in FM radio were given a gift that we really didn't understand at the time. But we were given a gift of using 100,000 watts for your four-hour shift and playing what you wanted, and people gravitated to it. The audience for Kink was so loyal that uh, it was extraordinary. We would get personal letters daily from people saying, I just want you to know what it means to me personally to wake up to you, Jeff Douglas, or to you, Jack McGowan, or whoever it may be, or Scott Carter with Lights Out, and what it means to be personally. And we would read these letters and kind of shake our heads going, wow, you know, talk about impact, talk about a relationship. And we took that, that relationship very seriously. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you, what the listener reaction was to this new thing on the dial. And were you guys out doing any sort of you know, studio or uh, station events where you would meet up with listeners and and get their reaction that way as well? Well, the big event that, that Kink was involved with was actually thought of uh, by a great friend of mine, Joan Biggs. Uh, Joan was the public affairs uh, director for KGW-TV. And she came up with this idea called Neighbor Fair. And the, the genesis of that 
was that Neil Goldschmidt was uh, was mayor at the time of Portland, and without you know before the horrors of of his private life became public. Well, a new park was established called Tom McCall Waterfront Park that used to be Harbor Drive, which was a freeway. And as cities were doing reclaiming their relationship with their rivers, that highway was shut down, torn up, and Waterfront Park was established. And Goldschmidt wanted some kind of a public event to celebrate the opening of Waterfront Park. KGW AM, KGW TV, and KINK formed this partnership with Joan as kind of the leader, and we brought together all of the neighborhoods of Portland. We brought in literally hundreds of thousands of people, and Kink would have the main stage along with KGW-TV and AM, and uh, the different, uh, different folks on air would be, would be the MCs. And it was an amazing event. It, it, Portland looked at itself as this wonderful enclave of various ethnic cultures, the different neighborhoods celebrating who they were, all coming together in this nonprofit event that lasted probably about a good five to seven years. And Neighbor, neighbor Fear became the big signature event uh, that Kink would, would participate in every year. Um, about a year after you joined the station, uh, you created the second Kink logo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me about that, about how that came about and, and your inspiration behind it. Well... When I when I joined uh, Kink, uh, this is a throwback. Uh, Kink's tagline, and Jeff hated this. Yeah, I remember. And so I did John that. David, uh, and all of us did uh, on the air. And it was Kink, the underground link. Yeah. And we scratched our heads, going, "That is so dated." I mean, it, 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 first of all, it's trite as can be. It has no real meaning. Whoever thought of it, it should be in the dustbin. <laughs> And so when I, when I joined, I came to, came to Jeff and I said, Jeff, we've got to throw out this old image. It's just, it's not only tired, it doesn't represent who we are. And Jeff immediately agreed. Jeff Douglas, Kink's first program director, talks about Kink, the underground link. The very first promotion we did was Kink, the underground link, which I hesitate to bring back because it was a, uh, that was a mistake. Yeah, it, it, it brought us exactly the kind of notoriety that we probably didn't need. In other words, people that were looking for something, an, an alternative. At that point, for some reason, album music was called underground music. I, I'm not even sure why. I guess because it wasn't being played on most of the radio stations. So its fans were learning about it through some underground grapevine. That was a, a word that was popular then, underground. And, and so the promotion guy put it into the uh, advertising. And it did give us a certain amount of talk, but it was probably the the kind of talk that made people think, well, they're kind of weird, which those of us working didn't feel particularly weird. We were different than most of the other stations in town, but we just, that's all we felt was different. So in retrospect, I, I would have not used the word underground in connection with I'd gone ahead and played what we played, but not used that uh, tact. Of course, times were different then. Oregon was in a very expansionary uh, period, and uh, it's much easier to be visionary when the economy's booming. We'll wrap up the podcast with Jack McGowan, Kink's first promotions manager. There was a graphics designer uh, in KGW Television that uh, that uh, that I got to know, Carolyn Collins, and and Carolyn and I sat down and I said, Carolyn, what I'd love to do is create a a signature, literally like mm -hmm. somebody's name, mm -hmm. a, a handwriting handwritten signature of of Kink. And so we noodled back and forth, as opposed to block letters. Yeah. It was really the first station that we could find that actually had a personalized signature, as though if somebody actually scrawled it out. And Kink used that for probably a good twenty years. Tell me one of your favorite stories from Kink early days. Oh my gosh, there's so many, uh, so many. Um, I would say one of the big ones was. Um, when I was living in Northwest Portland, I, w I was on, living on uh, Northwest 24th and uh, 25th and Quinby, and uh, right down the block, um, Bill Walton was living, mm -hmm. and uh, he was still with the Trailblazers, and Bill uh, and I became friends, and he, he, he would listen to me listen to my shift daily uh, on Kink, and Bill 
after he broke his leg uh, or his foot in in one of the playoff games, uh, Bill was so despondent and so um, frustrated. Um, he really took the injury personally, and he felt that he was he was pushed by the team to play when he shouldn't have played, and then finally the, the legendary break uh, during during the game. Uh, while Bill was in his cast, he and I sat in my uh, my apartment and, and watched the playoffs together. Shortly thereafter, Bill had decided to leave the team, and he called me up uh, late one night and said, "Jack, I'm, uh, I've decided to leave the Blazers. Um, I want you to conduct the only interview that I will grant. Oh wow! And I want it to be on Kink and Live. Wow." And Howard Cosell and Brent Musburger and others were calling the station and calling me saying, we'll fly out to do the interview. And I said, no, <laughs> the only way it's going to be happen is that Bill wants me to, to do the sole nationwide interview. So I called Jeff up and uh, said, Jeff, uh, you know, this is this. I just got off the phone from Bill. This is what he wants to do. Jeff immediately said, let's do it. So with, uh, with a little over 24 hours' notice, uh, we sent out a nationwide press release, uh, and uh, Bill came into the studio through a back door because the front of the KGW uh, where we were housed was filled with people. Mm-hmm, I would imagine. And uh, Bill and I, for the next hour, hour and a half, uh, played Grateful Dead music <laughs> at, at his request because he, he loved the Grateful Dead. But interspersed between the different Grateful Dead songs, uh, Bill gave his life story and, uh, and the reasons why he wanted to leave the Blazers. Wow, that would have been quite, quite the experience. Well, it really was. You know, there were numerous things like that. Um, Scott Carter and I uh, interviewed John Ehrlichman, uh, who, along with Haldeman, were part of the Watergate conspiracy under Nixon. And after Ehrlichman got out of prison, uh, he had written a book called The Company. And uh, I got a call from the publisher because I was doing a public affairs uh, show on Sunday mornings where I'd interview different authors. And Ehrlichman came into the station, and here's John Ehrlichman along with Scott Carter and me. And, uh, you know, we conducted a a rather intensive interview about Watergate, the reasons behind Watergate, and then also about the book that uh, Ehrlichman had just written. So what was interesting, Peggy, was because of Kink's, I think, stature Mm -hmm. in the community, a, a thoughtful station that just didn't play nothing against it, but just didn't, you know, scream at the audience and play top 40 and all of that, we were a more thoughtful station and were recognized throughout the West Coast as a departure from the normal type of radio. And with that, as the audience increased, as our, uh, I would say, responsibility and the way people recognize kink increased, we received more and more of that national, not national attention, but where authors, where uh, new movies would come out. Uh, Scott did an amazing interview with Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. when Jaws came out, and they hunted us down. Yeah. And so that, that was kink. That, kink really was on the forefront of, of not only music, but of, of on-air thought, where we were given the latitude of talking to people in a, an intelligent, creative way. What's interesting, uh, listening to you tell the stories of early kink days and John David, is that a lot of what was born into kink's DNA has lasted throughout the years in one form or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but has been a part of who kink is through various changes, uh, both with personnel and, you know, uh, as the music ebbs and flows. So it's really interesting to hear you and John tell those stories. Nothing, nothing is static. No. Everything is dynamic. And kink has evolved, but I still remember Jeff and I sitting down and talking in-depth about the philosophy of kink mm-hmm. 
And what Jeff and John gave Jeff that latitude, I think, uh, Jeff realized that Kink could be an intelligent source of entertainment. To be able to discuss something or give your personal feelings on air, you know, talking about what the morning was like or uh, creating a musical blend that, uh, that shifted and ebbed, you know, for, for maybe three or four songs without commercial interruption. Uh, Jeff always said that he wanted Kink to track as the audience moved through life. So now, you know, the audience, you know, a lot of Kink audiences is, is, is in their 70s. Mm-hmm. But Kink is not tracking where people are today. Kink is tracking in that intelligent way of treating people with respect, of, of celebrating uh, uh, intelligence, if you will, and attracting new people as they evolve and their musical tastes come into more of an AOR sound, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But Kink has remained true to that basic tenet of not only intelligent thought, intelligent delivery, but intelligent music. Music that, ha- that, that has some thought behind it. And I think that's a good way to end this. Thank you so much, Jack, for joining me this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. So happy to do it. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with John David and Jack McGowan and featuring Jeff Douglas. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. This was going to be the final episode in the Portland 50 podcast series. The Portland 50 will continue next year with Court Johnson as the host as he interviews 50 more people who help make Portland what it is. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.